Ladies and gentlemen, this is entitled Weekend. Welcome to another edition of Entitled Weekend, and it is the week after, well, a couple of days after the first preseason game that the Patriots played against the Giants, and uh, it's it's a really interesting preseason. It's been a really interesting training camp so far, and interesting in that it's been absolutely batshit as far as the media is concerned, um, it, and through the portion of this show, through the course of the show, we're going to delve into all of this because it's just been uh I, I don't know what to say. It's just been ridiculous. But first let's talk about this preseason game first and I want to get you guys' um reactions just overall about what you thought about the game and who you like, um who who what what got your attention and uh I'll start with you Bill. What 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 caught your eye, what what are you paying attention to? What are you looking forward to forward to seeing um next week and in the weeks after? Sure. So you know, I was at the game, so my view might be a little bit different. I didn't see it through the same lens that somebody with T V and replay probably did to get a, a more refined view. Um, but it looked like a good day if you had the same last name as players that are already established on the roster. Um, you know, a lot of our Joneses had really good had really good games that showed up. Um, obviously, Tyquan Thornton had a good game. Wilkerson had a nice performance there. Um, I think the wide receivers are going to be a conversation throughout the preseason and not in the way people thought going in. I think it's going to be, you know, a, a lot of Wait, really you, talented are you, guys. Are you, are you saying they have weapons? <laughs> yeah, plur, plural. Multiple Zs. Multiple Zs weapons. Um, so I think that's going to be a discussion. I think that running back room, is a conversation. Um, you know, you didn't see a lot of it in the game uh, because they were really seeming to be focused on the pass blocking schemes and in part because of the amount of blitz the uh, Giants brought to the table. They were throwing up the ball a lot. Um, you know, and for that reason, I also thought Zappi held himself fairly well. I know he didn't wasn't, you know, on point, but for the first performance with a blitz-heavy defense running against you, fairly solid. Um, but yeah, Thornton, the Joneses, Harris... Um, you know, a lot of the guys really had some some nice performances there. Um, if I were going to index towards something that I was a little nervous about, Haron having a couple of false starts there, uh, that that's something to keep an eye on. Um, it might have been because of Zappi and having a different, you know, Zappi and Hoyer, different cadences with different quarterbacks, what have you. Um, but something to keep an eye on as you go through the second and third preseason game will be um, when he's in action, is there still that desire and look to be getting that jump that can sometimes index towards somebody who's getting beat in practice? Um, so you really just want to keep an eye on that um, moving forward. But if I were to index towards anything, I'd just watch in terms of cleaning it up, you know, the things Belichick would write in his notebook. It's not Heron is doomed, uh, but just something that he, you know, that keep an eye on during the, the rest of the preseason games would be those sort of false starts, procedural penalties. I think that's going to tell us a lot about where some of the, uh, the offensive linemen are in their play. And Rob, what did you think about the uh, preseason game, game number one? That's technically game number two. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I'm stunned that Bill was able to pay attention to the game and he wasn't staring at who was playing, who was calling the plays and who was talking to what quarterback <laughs> at what time. And, you know, because that seems to me like the thing that all the, the, the Phil Perry's of the world were just myopically focused on was how, how many seconds did Joe Judge talk to Bailey Zappi instead of Matt Patricia and, so just that ludicrous storyline that won't die. But um, I was actually uh, watching that game, obviously through the lens of the first preseason game. The one thing that jumped off to me, it jumped off the screen on the TV was the speed of the defense, uh, which was noticeably faster. Um, and if the, I'm not, a, a, I'm not all that well-versed on the giants, but if the giants beat guys were to be believed, that was the first team giants offense out there for the first two or three series. Um, not just Jones, but that was their first team O-line and that sort of thing. And I, I thought the what was essentially, in many cases, the second string Patriots front seven afforded themselves pretty well. I mean, Jennings was all over the field. Um, Uche started to starting to look like Josh, Josh Uche that we, you know, were promised. He was, you know, taking on blockers and throwing them aside and getting after the quarterback. And the pocket was collapsing to me really, really quickly. Um, and so that overall speed that was coming. And then also when Cam McGrone came in, now that was, uh, you know, obviously not against the first stringers, but what struck me about McGrone was he was all over the place, you know, a tip ball that was 10 yards away from him. And he was a fingertip away from picking it off a couple of times. And I'm like, how did he get there? You know, and it's just all these sort of how did they get there questions that I don't remember asking about the Patriots defense um, over the last few years. They've always been kind of a step behind that stuff on the game one of the preseason. They seemed like they were a step ahead of that stuff for a change. And uh, the Patriots pass rush without uh, Matt Judon on the outside and without Christian Barmore in the middle. So if you add those two guys in, um, that could have been a really, really long day for Daniel Jones in that offense should those two have played. And then the other thing that I really liked, other um, trying to stay away from the things Bill mentioned, I was really, you know, excited what I saw from Tyquan Thornton, especially down in the end zone. Um, that one touchdown where he, you know, shed the, the corner on that sort of scramble drill and was able to get free and got held. And still caught the touchdown. And then he made that play down the sideline where he got off the ball and Hoyer kind of underthrew him. I think Hoyer may have not, you know, realized just how fast that guy actually is. But um, watching him, uh, that's just the the beginning. That's just the tip of the iceberg. He's only going to get better. And then the other thing was Sean Wade on the outside. Um, He played a lot in that game. And he wasn't, you know, Darrell Revis by any stretch of the imagination, but he was competitive he didn't get burned. He was always around the ball. He had his hands on plays. I mean, you know, if it comes down to, say, uh, a Sean Wade and a Malcolm Butler, I'm not so sure Malcolm Butler wins that that competition. So, I mean, I guess we'll see as the preseason moves along. This week against Carolina is going to be big. But um, just the overall speed of the defense really has me kind of excited about what I saw. Yeah, those, <laughs> those are great. And for me, I thought the game was excellent and I mean, I don't, I, I, again, preseason is, it's weird, especially now that there's only three games is there, there's, there's a whole lot less that you really decide. And then week one comes along and, you know, as we all know, Belichick uses September as a extended preseason. And, but I, I just, I just had a lot of, a lot of good things coming from that game. Um, you guys touched on Taekwondo Thornton, um, he looked awesome. Instead of being shut down by jams every snap that you would think, um, the Giants number ones were struggling to contain him from, from the get go, from play one. And also a guy who, well, a couple of guys on defense who I, uh, who I caught my eye, um, Mac Wilson, 
um, a signing that kind of was relatively quiet, didn't make a lot of noise, but he is a representative of what I think this defense is going to be, which is fast and speedy. And that was kind of the reason why I thought that, you know, they needed to, to, to move on from not, not necessarily move on from the guys like Hightower and et al, but you know, guys like Kyle Van Noy and those types of guys. Like he, you can tell how the, the speed of guys like a Mac, Mac uh, Wilson and Sam Roberts, he, I think was probably one of, if not, if not my first, he was my second favorite pick in the draft. Um, number one, cause he's a Patriots fan. And number two, um, and, and I think he played what, one and a half quarters. He tossed his his man aside, his offensive lineman aside, in like a, like a couple of seconds, and he ran clean towards the quarterback twice, and he drew a holding penalty. He looks just like Christian Barmore. And unlike Greg Bedard, that's a good thing. I mean, he's dominating NFL guards just like he did the two guys in college. And that's the guy they needed, I think, to pair up with Barmore. And also the cornerbacks. Um, the, Belichick brought in a bunch of scrappy, underrated guys like a Terrence Mitchell and obviously Malcolm Butler and, and Mitchell. Uh, it was interesting to see Malcolm Butler playing this game, uh, but he, they did great against the Giants number ones. Um, I think he's in great shape, and both of these guys are excelling at creating turnovers. You know, Malcolm Butler's not used to turning over the ball, so um, I'd be interested to see what happens with that. <laughs> uh, so... Yeah, so this game has me really encouraged about a lot of things, uh, but you wouldn't know it uh, if you heard from the media over this last week. It's just been a terrible, no horrible, no good, very bad training camp. And I, I, I was talking to you guys in the chat about how pointed the language has been through all of these beat writers. Horrible, terrible. Of not good, like it's just been really pointed language that you know I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it's it's really it's really weird. And I know we 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 all we've all talked about it in the chat, and I'm wondering what if you guys see that pattern and why is it there? Because if what we're seeing is totally different from what all these guys who are actually there every day seeing, then where's the disconnect here? But what do you think about this, Bill? The disconnect, I really think, is that the media members are so, like, they had limited access the last two seasons for various reasons, mostly aligned with COVID. Um, and now they're getting, like, the full experience again. And it's their first real full experience since Brady and since that departure. There's no world where it's going to look as crisp with a second-year quarterback adjusting to a new system with a defense that is, you know, able to come together pretty quickly, it's not going to look perfect. It's not going to look solid. Um, and it's going to take the preseason to sort that out and probably a couple of the first weeks of the year. But the media doesn't want to give that latitude because they have become very accustomed to being able to say, oh, Tom Brady did great. And, you know, here's the other players that did great. And they're going to be great and looking like they're accurately reporting. Now they're seeing growth and development, things they haven't had to really pay attention to from a lot of positions in a long time. And they're not equipped to discuss that in the same way that they might have been. The people who do a little bit more national stuff, the people who have been promoted nationally, such as Howe, Reese, etc., they are. They've been to other camps. They've seen it 
through multiple lenses. And they're able to report on that really cohesively. As long as other people have been doing things and maybe pit stops at other camps, they've been looking at those camps through the lens of the Patriots for a long time and looking at it through the lens of just like a machine. Is it the same machine it was? No. And no one here is going to say it's going to be uh, the same machine that it was. We don't have Tom Brady. But it's going to still be a developing, growing, improving team throughout the year. People forget that this team, especially the offense, is bringing back 10 of 11 starters from last year. Added Devontae Parker. Added Tyquan Thornton. Brought in some new talent at running back. And then drafted a first-round guard who looked and we didn't talk about him in that preview, looked good in that first game. Limited snaps, you know, but, you know, definitely loves to finish his blocks. That's what you want to see, was really sealing off holes when there was an opportunity in the run game. That's all you can look for at this stage in the game. They're going to have growing pains. That will happen. This is not declaring that the Patriots are Super Bowl favorites in 2022. This is saying the Patriots are a team on the rise, and you've got to accept the growing pains that come along with that. And the media is so poorly equipped to understand that. They just have no concept of how to rectify that one thing going wrong blows up a play, but how other 10 other things could be going right. And Belichick hit on that in his interviews, talking about plays that people who and I at might not be usable in a game because they would have been blown up for one reason or another. And plays that look like they were completely shot one small adjustment, one person doing their job in a slightly different way makes that a huge gain. The play worked exactly how they wanted it to, except for one piece, one instance, one example that they then go over and film and fix. That's what we need to be focused on. And I just think the media is, it's lazy. It, it, what it comes down to is it's a lot of laziness. They want it to be like covering Brady where they can look smart saying how good it looks. And so they see bad and they go, oh, it looks bad. It's just lazy reporting. And it, it's overdone and overtired and i think they're getting tired of it you hear it with curran going back and forth on the oc stuff the offensive coordinator stuff he's like oh you know i'm getting tired of this story but who's calling the plays i'm sick of talking about who's calling the play like it you know he's a he's jekyll and hyde anyway but that's a perfect example of it they're getting tired of not understanding it too and they just we need to see the work ethic from the media be there too delve into what the causes of some of the difficulties they're seeing are and how the team is actively working to improve those. That reporter is going to go far. Right now, they're all getting lost in the deluge of negativity that's coming out. Yeah, I mean, I totally, totally agree with that. I mean, I think the the thing that drives me the craziest about the who's calling the plays, you know, Patricia, Joe, all this sort of thing that they are so focused on and they can't get off of it is they don't even understand what the positives and negatives are of Matt Patricia calling plays. They don't even understand what the positive and negatives are of Joe Judge calling plays. They don't know and they don't even know why they should be upset about it. They don't even know which one they should be rooting for because none of us do because none of us are that intimately familiar with what they know, what they don't know, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are. You know, the, the, the notion that Matt Patricia having been a Super Bowl caliber, Super Bowl winning caliber defensive coordinator and defensive play caller, doesn't understand the offensive side of the ball, to me, is ludicrous. They're the same sport. They're, 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 they're teaching the same concepts. They know, if anything, I think it makes them even more equipped 
to, to do that because when he looks at the Patriots offense, he says, probably says to himself, geez, how would I attack that offense? You know, or how are these guys attacking that offense? And he can instill that knowledge in his quarterback's head. So at least he knows what he's looking for, what they're trying to accomplish, those sorts of things. That would be my guess, but I don't really know. So until, until then, why don't we give the guy who's got six rings on his finger, the benefit of the doubt that, you know, he may just know what he's doing after all, you know, and this myopic focus on that is driving me nuts. And for an entire week, all we heard about or week and a half was, you know, not only the Patriots offense is struggling in camp, that would have been one take that would have been, you know, reasonable if they were in fact struggling. What we heard was the Patriots offense is doomed. What we saw was Sarah Spain on ESPN having that idiot Greg Bedard on, who again, doesn't even know what he's looking at, telling the world. The Patriots offense is doomed, lending credibility to a complete moron to tell everyone that the Patriots offense is doomed. Patriots fans better gear up for a two win season that they're not going to score any points. You know what, Greg, this was a top 10 scoring offense last year with a quarterback in his rookie year. That's what that's what that was. That's now added players that are even better than they were last year. You know, I, I'm not saying that losing Josh McDaniels is a good thing, but do I think it's catastrophic? No, I don't think it's catastrophic at all. At all. You know, I mean, how many times have we like, would, I, I'm a, I'm a nerd. So I watch like all the Belichick documentaries. I watch all that stuff. And when you watch the, the one constant from Belichick assistants, when you, you hear it from Nick Saban in the HBO doc that they did together, the art of coaching, you hear it from Josh McDaniels himself. You hear it from Weiss, Cornell, all of them say the exact same thing. They say when Bill Belichick gives you a task, gives you an assignment, gives you a job to do. He clearly defines what it is he's looking for. He defines your role. Then he lets you have at it. That's what they always say. It, it, that was Nick Saban's direct quote. He's going he's gonna to give you the latitude you need, but he's going to tell you exactly what he's looking for. Which means he's, and then you hear Ozzie Newsom in that same documentary, or in the Cleveland 95 documentary, he says the same thing. He defines a role for you, then he lets you have at it. But when you present your information to him, you better know what you're talking about because he's already done the work himself. He just wants to hear what you think. So if you come in there shooting from the hip, he's going to know it. You know, this was 20 years ago. The guy didn't get dumber over 20 years. You know, he understands what he's no, doing. He, didn't. he knows what he's doing. He knows what this offense is supposed to look like. He And he has confidence that Joe Judge and Matt Patricia know what this offense is going to look like, regardless of which one of them calls the plays. It doesn't matter. You know, it's like... Right. I, Rob, I have a question for you, because I, I feel like you and I both jump in on this quite a bit, and Shaq can jump in, you know, if, if, he's, if he would like on this. But I, I, the, I, it's just... I, I question, we've got two, these two people, Judge and Patricia, and we've got one that's coaching offensive line alongside and one that's coaching quarterback alongside. Is it possible that this idea of haste to the line, they talk about wanting to play faster, is because two people are going to be bringing in two separate plays or running a pass, and they're going to trust Mac Jones to make the decision at the line of scrimmage? It, it very well may be. Uh, my understanding is that's how they did it with Peyton Manning, was they would send in multiple plays and then based on the front he sees he would call the play right from the line that could very well be the case i mean he's certainly smart enough you know he's certainly smart enough right yep yeah it it, what it just comes to me because you're looking at it and it's if the idea of getting to the line quickly doesn't mean playing faster it means they're able to move like they they are the speed of the players will make them play the actual snap faster but getting to line gives them more time to digest what they're seeing across from them 
And then if you've got these two coaches coaching these two separate angles, one is going to talk to the offensive line between drives and one is going to talk to the quarterback between drives. And they're going to understand what they're seeing, what runs might they think are there, who's beating who. And they're able to really get into it. And then they can discuss and say, all right, well, I'm calling in this play. And like they, you know, they can say, okay, let's call it based on what we think, you know, we want to go past here, but let's have a good audible run out of this formation. So somebody will probably be leading the calling, but then there'll be a secondary call that's made based on the expertise of that separate side. Right. Absolutely. And I'll tell you what, for all the prognosis. Yeah, for all the prognostications of doom that we heard about the offense over the last week and a half, I thought they looked pretty decent. The second string offense, mind you, against the first string Giants defense, I thought they looked pretty good. And the fact that the first string offense wasn't even on the field, I think if they were struggling to the level that we were led to believe they were struggling, I think their asses would have been out on that field getting as many reps in as they possibly could, right? I mean, wouldn't that conventional wisdom tell you that? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Bill Belichick is not passing up valuable reps if they are valuable reps. That like that's just not going to occur. When he's putting out his rookie guard to get him some game action, and then four backup linemen to start the game, tells you he's fine with where that offensive line is at in yep. terms of their development. The other piece I would mention there is just, and I, I tweeted about it earlier, the concept that Bill Belichick and the Patriots coaching staff wasted time teaching rookies and undrafted free agents the old system so that they could show people the old system in the preseason game as if it's not going to be used and it's a diversion from what the first team is learning is the most absurd thing I have ever heard, especially when the whole point of moving from the more complicated system is to make it easier for people to learn. There's just they they are certainly going to bring in concepts from offensive that have worked before. They're not going to take everything Mac Jones did last year that worked well and put it in the bin. Of course, they're going to have some of that, but they're probably using terminology and language and building root trees off of it that are simpler and allow them to move faster through it. And they're going to also build in some of the Shanahan style run blocking and things like that. But that doesn't mean that they're going to go away completely from what they've done before. They're not teaching things as a diversion. That's not what you do in the preseason. Oh, we got you, Giants. We decided to run our old stuff. We got you, media. We bluffed you. Like, what? There's, it's just such a delusion of grandeur to think that they would waste their time doing that when really what they want to do is win football games. They're going to practice the things that are going to help them win football games, not practice the things that make Tom Curran sleep at night. And it just highlights what happens when Bill Belichick is not telling them everything. Like, you know, Shaq and I were talking earlier, you know, that the Philadelphia media, I'm in Pennsylvania, the Philadelphia media actually compared Nick Sirianni to Bill Belichick last year during their like six, six out of seven, whatever that win streak they had was. And it made me so infuriated. I actually called the radio show and got hung up on. But, you know, you watch some of these other press conferences and it always amazes me how how transparent they are with the media as though they owe as though they're they have a badge and a gun and they have to fork fork over this information you know it's it doesn't it does the team that you're coaching no good no good to be forthright with the media no good at all which is why bill belichick doesn't tell them anything nor should he nor should he so he leaves them to their own devices and Mm -hmm. this is the type of stuff they come up with is that you know all of a sudden he's going to turn into the, you know, the, the Buffalo Bills K-gun offense morphed with, you know, the run and shoot and nobody's going to see it. It's what are you talking about? <laughs> you know? 
You know, and the other thing too is no, like, and it's it, the, the it, there's a reason why the phrase mid-season form exists. You know, mid-season form exists because it's typically the way teams play after they've gone through a full training camp, a full preseason, a full six or eight games, and they're really they've been practicing and pounding and beating on these concepts for months and months and months and months. The Patriots, at the time they they declared time, by the time they called time of death on the Patriots' offense, they had had eleven practices under their belts, three with pads. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and time of death right. was called. <laughs> yep. Right. And we're talking about, you know, Allen Iverson. We're talking about practice. <laughs> not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. And when you've had three padded practices, but 11 practices, the defense can do more to prepare and be ahead of the offense, especially the offensive line blocking schemes. That requires practice and pads to perfect. So we're three padded practices in, and the offensive line is doomed, and therefore the team is doomed. It's foolishness. But the point you make about the media is really good, too, because it's what I think we forget here is that Belichick also has the latitude to be a mean cuss to the media because he's Bill Belichick. What tends to happen is the coaches have to play nice with the media because if they struggle, the media is going to dictate if it's a call for the team to bring in new talent or the GM to get replaced, or is it time for the coach to get replaced? And it's one of those scenarios where it's, you know, human centipede. The coach feeds shit to the media, the media feeds shit to us. And that's, and it's, I, I don't blame them. You want job security. That's not a knock on any coach who does that. You know, McVeigh clearly playing footsie with the with the media got him this big story this year, but he was already getting a fat contract because he won the Super Bowl. Like, but if he decided to be a mean cuss after this season, he probably has a little more security. There's very few coaches that can do that right now that have the security. Probably Harbaugh, Tomlin, Belichick, probably McVeigh, you know, maybe one or two others. But you're, it, it's this endless cycle of bullshit. And, you know, I, I just – I get tired of why can't Belichick be like the other coaches? No, it's, no, why can't the other coaches be more like Belichick? The media should be working for their stories. They, they get paid to do this. My, I think my motif of the day is the media has been lazy here. They, they want to be handed everything. And when they're not, they pout, they whine, and they complain, and they take it out on the viewer of their TV show, the listener of their podcast – or the person reading their reporting. It, well, in Curran's podcast, they were bloviating about the, uh, the, the, they were basically already calling time of death on Matt Judge and Joe, uh, Matt Patricia and Joe Judge calling offensive plays. And the point they made was that nobody wants to work for the Patriots. You know, that they, they wanted to bring in, they, I think they quoted Breer, Albert Breer, and they said that they wanted to bring in Bill O'Brien, but then they <laughs> oh. thought to themselves, that, well, if Bill O'Brien comes in here and has some success, then he's only going to be one year and out and he'll get a head coaching job. And it's like, and they didn't want that. And it's like that. Welcome to the NFL. That, that's the way the NFL works. You know, this is Bill Belichick's 47th year in the NFL. He's been with the Patriots for 20 something years. How many coordinators has he lost? Remember at the end of the 04 Super Bowl, they lost them all. He lost Weiss to Notre Dame. He lost Cornell to Cleveland. He, lo- he right. lost his entire coaching staff and he didn't miss a beat. You know, he didn't miss a beat. And then there, there are other pontification was, well, nobody wants to coach for the Patriots because the hours are too long and the expectations are too high. Well, I do a lot of interviewing with my company for new hires. And if I interviewed a new hire who said, you know, 
I don't want to do a whole lot of work and I don't want you to expect a lot from me. That's probably not someone I'm going to hire. So my guess is that's probably the same way Bill Belichick looks at it too. So he's not going to bring in somebody who doesn't want to work, you know, it's just their whole, all of their, their methodologies are just ludicrous. They are. And, and Shaq, I'd love, I'd love to pick your brain on this too, because we've been rambling for a bit, but um, you know, we're talking right now about the, the court, you know, the rotation of coordinators and people saying that the sky is falling with Belichick and essentially that, you know, we, you know, we are dealing with a lazy media who's looking for the narratives to paint things negatively because that's the easiest road to go. Right. And I want to get to the media portion of it as far as this is concerned, because first of all, with Matt and with Joe, First of all, I mean, Rob, Rob and I was talking about this before we started recording. The media wants everything in a silver platter. They want their work done for them. And Bill Belichick is the guy that doesn't give it to them. And I have a few clips that will demonstrate that. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's really interesting the way not just the media and the local media, but these clowns and losers who get way too much attention like Warren Not Sharp and Dov Botkley Kleiman, who are, you know, Belichick haters, you know, Brady Butt Boys, who, you know, can't wait to have any type of slight against the Patriots because I guess they don't like Matt Patricia and they don't like Joe Judge for whatever reason, because of their personalities, whatever it means. And so I think that they want these offensive coordinators, I, I think they want a name. First of all, they want a name of somebody that they know. And so they could say, well, that guy's the offensive coordinator. But even if they got a name for offensive coordinator, it'd be like they, that an offensive coordinator for any team, whether offensive or defensive, is a, is, that's a lightning rod for any team, for any fan base. That's the guy you blunt, you point the blame to when a play goes bad, when a, 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 uh, when a, a call is wrong. That's when that's the offensive coordinator and that's the defensive coordinator. That's their job. And so, you know, you always got to have a fall guy. You always got to have a guy you got to blame. But when it comes to people like Andrew freaking Callahan, who, you know, again, again, another one of these CLNS uh, Ponzi scheme uh, podcasters. Um, and Rob has uh, been gracious enough to give me uh clips of, of, of this guy and his work, I put work in quotation marks. Um, he's, well, well there, there, there are two examples, but I'm going to play just one of them because it's absolutely idiotic. Um, first of all, he takes Greg Bedard's bullshit narrative that Belichick not naming an official offensive and defensive coordinators because that he knows the defense and offense are going to absolutely be terrible, and he's trying to take the heat for himself. And then he starts the segment as though it was already established and it's already fact and it's unproven. As if, like, Belichick said that himself. And here he is. He's starting to give his asinine ramblings about Belichick coaching the offense. And then he flippantly throws in something really stupid as if Belichick doesn't know what he's doing. It's, it's, it's pretty idiotic. Listen to this. But in reality... This is still Bill Belichick's show. And what we've seen, what we know, actually definitively, from this week alone, is that Bill Belichick, quote, laid out a vision for the offense, the new revised updated offense, according to Mac Jones. We know that Bill Belichick has called plays for at least one 11-on-11 period 
as he did on day three, on Friday's practice. We know that he has been working almost exclusively with the quarterbacks and wide receivers in the first, you know, 20, 25 minutes of all these practices. And we know that he's presented in meeting rooms. So any changes about the system, what Matt Patricia wants to bring or what Joe Judge wants to implement has to go through the boss, which I think the easiest way to view the offense and the, the whole structure with the offensive coaching staff at this, at this stage is going to be, let's think about what the defensive side looked like after Matt Patricia left, right? So 2018, he goes, Brian Flores is your de facto defense coordinator. He's the play caller. But Bill is laying out the vision, as Mac Jones said, defensively. It's his game plan. And then he hands the keys to Brian Flores on Wednesday when they start practicing and says, okay, go coach him up. And that's what Brian Flores did. He did it. He called plays on Sundays, 2019. Those keys go from Brian Flores to Steve Belichick and Gerard Mayo. You know, Bill takes him back there briefly the early 2019 season. We've covered this. But they've really taken it since there. I think there's a strong possibility that that's what Belichick does. And whatever the offense is called, and he's not named an offensive coordinator, and he's going to throw himself in front of any criticism to block for Patricia Judge, but this really is going to be his system. And it's really interesting to see what he chooses, which there are limitations, right? He can't just draw up any sort of place he wants on the whiteboards. He's limited by the talents of his own roster. Yeah, as if as if he, he they weren't successful here before, and so much so they got head, head coaching jobs that they've come back from. As if coaching defensive football and offensive football are like on two different cinematic universes. You know, you know, it's unbelievable. Is there is there do you, does he not, does he think that there's no connection or advantage to be gleaned for a coach to have an <laughs> offensive coach to have an understanding of defense or a defensive coach to have a a, a Understanding of special teams, it's 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 mind-boggling how these how these people grasp onto a narrative and hold on to it for dear life, and just they they, they can't they they can't let it go until they're either proven wrong, and when then when they're proven wrong, they move the goalposts into something else. And the Patriots defense, and this is this was the other example, um, Stephon Gilmore apparently is having a, a, a good camp. You know, because, you know, good, good player has good camp. Shocking. But then Andrew Callahan just just retweets it, uh, quote tweets it, and has the clenched teeth emoji face. And so I call him out on it. I say, you know, if the Patriots defense is also having a good camp, you know, because, and, you know, if, but you would know that if you actually paid attention. And obviously he had to respond back because, you know, he knows I was telling the truth, but then he says, oh, why does that emoji make you think that I have been writing something like 2,000 words a day on what I've seen at training camp? Wow. I've written 2,000 words a day as well, but, you know, they haven't all always been, you know, drivel that doesn't make any sense and that could be uh, seen as a run-on sentence. It's like you're, you're these people gaslight their audience's intelligence, and unfortunately the audience is willing to take it. And it, it's just it's just disgusting and unnecessary. Oh, and one more thing. I want to go back to what uh, Rob was talking about with Sarah Spain. Isn't it amazing how Mike Reese was right there? Like, Mike Reese is right there over at ESPN. And yet, you want to go to Greg Bedard, who, who can't keep a job to save his life, who has his own website that is, <laughs> well, is, is not doing very well? Uh, and that's that's as kindly as I can put it. 
it's 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 truly remarkable how and, and you can tell that they they want that narrative out there that the Patriots are bad and that they're going to be bad and they're willing to get anybody and everybody who will be willing to peddle that narrative. Of course they will. It, of course they will. It's you know it, it, it's silly to say you know oh well I write two thousand words a day on this like no a picture is worth a thousand words and a tweet is worth more sometimes and when you're given that impression that you're saying, oh, they should have kept Gilmore, which is everything that you, anybody who looks at that goes, oh, that's the face of, oh, they should have kept him. Okay, play that out. He wanted 20 mil to stay here. He didn't get it. He got 20 mil for two years, not 20 mil for one. So if he wanted 20 mil annually, who are you taking off this team in last year? And you still have to trim like 13 mil this year because he wasn't taking a one-year deal. So, or, or you'd still be making that face this year. So who are you taking off of last year's team that we signed? Who are you taking off of this year's team? Play that out. If you're going to do that, write 2,000 words on how you would have kept Stephon Gilmore. I'll read it. Maybe maybe you make a compelling argument. But don't just put an emoji out there and be pissed off when people call you out on it. You want to talk about a story? Put your 2,000 words out. Go ahead. If you want to talk about you know the coaches, back it up with logic. You're not backing up logic. You're backing it up with a lot of feeling. Like, I feel like this is what's happening with Bill. I feel like the No, feelings aren't real. My wife's a behavior analyst. Feelings aren't real. They, they, they don't exist. They're, they're, a, they're, a, they're a reaction to stimuli. You are just reacting improperly to the stimuli. Because the facts tell me that Joe Judge and Matt Patricia get paid by the Giants and Lions if they're not serving in that coordinator role at a rate that's different than what they would be making as coordinators on the team. So I'm going to go ahead and follow the money because that's usually what people tell you to do in journalism. (laughs) I feel like that's a pretty like, you know, anytime you see journalism in a movie, it's always the, you know, and they're doing that like investigative reporting. It's always follow the money, follow the money, follow the money. I'm following the money and it's telling me, that they just didn't name who's the offensive coordinator so that whoever would be named the offensive coordinator still makes the money from when they were, you know, getting drawing a head coaching salary. It, it's just, it's nonsense that we're doing this and not have, you know, it's nonsense when Pat fucking McAfee is one of the voices of reason. The guy who's calling professional wrestling on Friday nights, splitting his time between like five different jobs. That guy has enough insight into the Patriots. To be able to say, oh, yeah, he mentioned the, the coaches' salaries thing. He mentioned that the Patriots were, you know, looked better in, in the preseason than what the media was portraying. That guy, the guy who just wrestled Baron fucking Corman a few weeks ago, is the guy who's telling everybody exactly what needs to be said about the Patriots. I, I Like, how do you manage, like, that tells you, again, as I said earlier, motif of the day, how lazy is most of the media here? When Pat McAfee, with like 75 jobs, is able to dissect what's happening with the Patriots in a more succinct and understandable way than 90% of the media whose full-time job it is to cover the fucking Patriots. Yeah, and Pat McAfee, who, by the way, played for the Colts and was getting slapped around by the Patriots for years. He's got no love for the Patriots. You know, he's got a guy on his staff who's a huge Patriots fan. And they tool on that guy incessantly, you know, like, so it's not like they do the Patriots. That's what's amazing. And that clip you played, Shaq, of Andrew Callahan, if you really listen to it, is remarkable. It's remarkable to listen to it. What he's basically saying is, okay, we know 
Bill Belichick works with his quarterbacks for the 20 minutes out of a practice. We know Bill Belichick is keeping an eye on his offense during the first five minutes of this. So what you're saying is we know Bill Belichick is on the practice field coaching a football team. That That's essentially what he's saying. If you actually, when you go to training camp and you watch Bill Belichick, he bounces from unit to unit to unit. And there's a lot of times, uh, I remember when Mac Jones was first in there and he was competing with Cam Newton, all eyes were on that quarterback competition. And I remember during training camp one time I was sitting there and I was, you know, I was glued to it. I was watching Cam take a few reps and you watch Mac take a few reps and you look over and on the far field, way over there was Bill Belichick working with um, the place kicker they had last year, who everybody was freaking out about, thought they was going to take uh, Nick Folk's job. I can't think of his name. The guy was kicking it like 60 yards in preseason, but he's way over on the other side of the field. Could give a shit what's going on on the, uh, on the offensive side. He's over there working with this place kicker on fundamentals and all this sort of thing. That's what he does. He bounces around and he coaches his team, but he also empowers his coaches to do their job. That's what he does. And, you know, the thing with Andrew Callahan that really, what jumped out to me, and then when I listened to it a second time, that, that bite that you pulled, what jumped out to me the first time was it was Greg Bedard, it, who I will get to in my final thoughts. Believe me, I will get to Greg Bedard. There won't be a speck of meat on that guy's bones when I'm done with him. But it was Greg Bedard who is, who has a chronicled history of completely making shit up, completely making shit up that came out with that theory about, well, Belichick's not naming an offensive and defensive coordinator because he knows they're all going to stink. And because he doesn't want to, you know, he wants to take all the heat on himself because that's just the selfless guy that Bill Belichick is. He's going to take all the heat on himself instead of, you know, throwing his, his coordinators under the bus, which by the way, is the single dumbest thing I may have heard. And this is, that's saying a lot considering what we do here on this show is we talk about some of the most idiotic things ever uttered into a microphone. Greg Bedard takes the taco with that one. That one right there is probably the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But not only does Andrew Callahan listen to that, process it, think that that's actually what's going on. He drops it so flippantly into that bite that it's almost like, oh yeah, you know, almost like, yeah, well, this, the sky's blue, but anyways, we'll keep right on going. He just dumps it in there as though it's just accepted fact, as though Belichick uttered that at a press conference, you know? And then when you hear Belichick at his press conferences, you can hear him starting to get more and more irritated with the idiocy he's having to deal with. And the one that the press conference that Bill uh, referenced earlier, where he's basically telling them in pretty polite terms, mind you, you guys have no idea what you're looking at. You know, these plays that you ooh and ah at aren't going to oh, work. Oh, I, I have that clip right here. Thank you for... Yeah, right. Oh, you're, 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 you're teeing it up perfectly for me, Rob. I'll, I'll play it for you right now. <laughs> I don't know any way to... I mean, I've said this like four times, but I don't know any other way to keep saying it. You know, we can talk about what happened on a play, but... We're going to keep coaching the plays. We're going to keep working to improve them. And and I'm just telling you, good plays aren't all good plays. There's plays that are not good plays that, you know, everybody who's an Oz about, but they're really, they're not going to work. So what he's saying there. And I mean, if you want, and I, and I said this on Twitter. I, yeah, what he's I said it on Twitter. If you want a clear example of how shitty Boston media is, then you need to hear the, these um, uh, press conferences, the two press conferences from Bill Belichick. Um, I believe the first one was on August 9th, and 
The second one was after the preseason game, the first preseason game. And I'm going to play this, this, uh, last poll. I'll play, I'll, I'll save it for the end of the show. But I mean, the questions are as terrible, as stupid as, and I said this on Twitter, I said as a White House press conference, press corps dinner or a White House, uh, press corps, press conference. It's absolutely, uh, mind boggling. And Bill Belichick has the patience of a saint for how he is able to deal with just the unmitigated gall of these people. It's, I thought it was bad and I, and I knew it was bad, but I recommend you all go after the show, go and watch, go and watch these press conferences because you'll be in awe of how terrible, uh, this, this entire thing, this entire media spectrum is. Um, if, if I were Bell Bell, I'd tell them all to go fuck themselves, but you know, I, I, I guess that's why I'm not a head coach. Yeah, I mean, what he's telling them right there is you guys have no idea what it is you're looking at. But he says it in a very nice way. I was kind of hoping he would just get in the microphone and be like, you guys really think you know what you're, you're looking at, don't you? You know, you really do. You know, like you, you really don't understand what these plays are, what we're trying to accomplish and what you're watching. You have no idea, you know. So why do you how do you feel comfortable jumping on a microphone? And, you know, telling everyone in the world how pathetic our offense is. And then he has to sit there in a press conference and answer, like he just said, four questions right in a row that are basically loaded questions like, so, Bill, what are you going to do in week 10 when your offense sucks? Yeah, <laughs> you know, and it's like, finally, he'd had enough. He's like, I've had enough. What it, what it comes down to is just pure and simple. People who like, it, People who don't understand what they're looking at are the ones reporting on what they're looking at. It's again and again and again. You hear all these people from outside of New England, from players, coaches, you know, nationally talk about the brilliance of Bill Belichick. And every year we hear how this is going to be the year that it falls, that the wheels fall off, the wagon falls off. This, when, and as you said earlier, the worst season we've had since two, 2000 was the seven and nine year with Cam Newton during COVID. And, you know, having to play, you know, fly in the same day that we play Kansas City and have Brian Hoyer as our quarterback and lose by a score. And that's the only difference between going 500 and not. It's like we're we're talking about ridiculousness here. And it's like I would have lost my cool a long time ago. The way Belichick is able to handle the media doesn't get enough credit. And I think people expect, you know, expect that they're eventually going to get him. And it's, it's, you know, it's like every children's TV show, you know, every, you know, swiper on Dora the Explorer thinks he's always going to get away with it. Dora always stops him. Uh, Like, it's every kid show motif ever that the, you know, the bad guy thinks they're going to finally get the good guy and then they don't. You know, it's it's every Marvel movie, the, the, the call to except for, you know, Infinity War. Uh, but they, they think that it's finally going to happen. They're finally going to get them. And then they don't because they don't understand what's actually happening. They don't understand how simple it is for him to stop them as long as he keeps his cool and focuses on what's important. Belichick's been exceptional at that for a long time. And the media just doesn't ever think they, you know, the, the hubris, the laziness, it's all on display, especially during the preseason. Um, you know, I, I'm sure we'll be getting the, you know, Walmart employee player comments 
in short order too, where they downplay the achievements of somebody making a 90-man roster in the NFL. That will come in the next couple of days. Oh, they looked good, but it was against, you know, people who will be taking my order at McDonald's next week and insulting, you know, the player, McDonald's employees, and, you know, everybody that does things that they couldn't be capable of because none of them would handle customer service. They would all fold. Hey, I worked in the media for a long time, and I can tell you right now, McDonald's workers probably get paid better than those guys do. The guys that are making fun of them. <laughs> and, I, and even the fifth, fifth or sixth string uh, safety would, 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 would tackle better than, than your average radio host. But that's saying a lot, I guess. Um, let's switch gears for a second, guys, and let's go to some uh, – well, we didn't get a chance to talk about this, so we don't have to talk about it too much. But this whole Brady uh, fiasco with uh, him talking to uh, allegedly the Dolphins in 2019 and 2020 – well, well, really 2019, the majority of 2019. Um, initially, I was absolutely incensed. As, as, the, as the story was coming uh, into fruition, I got even more incensed because I'm just thinking about all the people who have been clamoring about all the, all the reason that Brady left is because he didn't have any weapons, which is obviously not true because in 2019, uh, those are going out of his way to get all the type of weapons that you could think of. You know, Antonio uh, Crazy Ass Brown and Mohamed Sanu. Uh, who else am, am I forgetting? Uh, Josh, Josh Gordon, Gordon was on the roster. Was still on the roster, right? So, and and come to find out that not only is Brady trying to, you know, but talk talk to them in 2019, but even then, when he went goes to Tampa, he's still talking with Miami. And to me, it, you know, and I guess the, the mother shit probably could do better than than. I think I can or we can, but to me, I'm just done. I'm just ready to see just just retire, go away, and I I don't know. Does this does this does this taint his legacy? Because it does to me. It, at least in, in 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 as a patriot, it does. Because there's never this this is unprecedented to me. It's never happened. I, I don't I don't remember a patriot tampering with another team while they're still under contract with the same team. I don't think that's happened. So I don't care if you're Brady or, uh, you know, Ross Ventrone. I don't care if you're any of that. You, you, you just don't do that. You know, for me, it's I've been, you know, back and forth on it, asking does it taint his legacy? To me, if you're asking about his legacy as a player, no. And I don't need to hero worship my professional athletes. You know, the the players I root for, I don't need to hear a worse them. They're human beings. They make mistakes. I think back to, you know, Kevin Falk getting caught with weed in his jacket that he was probably carrying for his friend. I, you know, the people, Chandler Jones running down to the Foxborough police station shirtless in the middle of the night. Uh, you know, it's players make mistakes. And I get that. This is a little bit different. And what it does taint to me is the image of who Brady has been as a teammate and who Brady is as a person. Because for a long time, we had this very squeaky clean image of Tom. And he was, you know, was always the team player, was always thinking about the team, was always, you know, and this is a betrayal of that. And it's okay to admit that. Like, there's a lot of Brady stands who are going to be pissed off that 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 there's a dare 
that somebody criticize him. This isn't me saying he's a bad teammate. It's not me saying he's a bad person. I'm saying that that is part of the equation, and he was at the highest pinnacle of who you could be in those areas. And it takes a ding for me. It takes a ding for me. And that's okay. I'm still going to be appreciative of what he brought to this team for 20 seasons. uh, I'm still going to watch those Super Bowls over and over again with a big shit-eating grin on my face. And I'm going to enjoy all of that. But I can't look at that on the same season where he was refusing to throw to Nikhil Harry and say that this didn't have some sort of impact. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, consummate professional, great teammate, when his teammates probably had to pick up slack. Think about your work. Like, this is all I ask people to do. Think about your job. And if somebody's getting, you know, applying elsewhere, aren't they a little distracted? If somebody's like half, you know, we hear the expression one foot out the door. That expression exists for a reason, just like mid-season form exists for a reason. One foot out the door tells you that they're not focused on what's happening in the building. And you know what? Tom wasn't. It's pretty clear that this was that was not his main focus, and it may have had impact on the results. Do I think that team was winning the Super Bowl that year? No. Do they still lose to the Titans in the first round? Possibly. But do I think that team could have been better if Tom was focused and all in on it versus playing footsie with the Miami Dolphins? Sure. But at the end of the day, taint his legacy as a Patriot. No. Again, as I said earlier, I think he wanted to be, you know, coach his own team, you know, essentially run his own team. Um, And so he was looking for what was next there. Do I think that it taints his legacy as a Patriot? No. Do I think I can always say consummate professional ultimate team player? It does take those things off the table for me. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, uh, He, there was just too many, too many good times for it to, to end over just that. But it does bother me. You know, it certainly does bother me. Not necessarily that he was playing footsie with the Dolphins. If he realized at the start of the 2019 season, this is going to be my last year with the Patriots. You know what? I can accept that. And I think Bob Kraft could accept that. And I think Bill Belichick could accept that. And that, which is why Kraft, instead of trading him and getting a a shitload of assets for him, said, you know what? You've given us 19, 20 wonderful years we are going to just let you walk off into the sunset and you can f- control your own destiny. That's what we're going to do for you because you've done so much for us, which I thought was a really classy move by Bob Kraft. There's aren't, there aren't very many, very many organizations left where, you know, they would allow that to happen because you're talking about a guy who probably, if they dangled him out on the open trade market with a full year left on his contract, probably would have brought back in quite a haul, you know, so they, they did right by him. And his reaction to that, and then the way he kind of kicked rocks during the season and acted like a child, and you know the leader of the, the Tom Brady, the leader that we had all come to recognize and, and revere in New England over his previous you know 16, 17, 18 years, where he was that selfless guy, he was that guy who's like, you know what, instead of giving me forty million, why don't you give me twenty five and take that other fifteen and sprinkle it around and bring it? So you know, he's always he was always that guy who thought team first. He was the guy who met with Belichick in his office every week and they went over the game plan and they were both locked in, which is why they were so formidable. When you have the greatest quarterback in the history of the game and the greatest coach in the history of the game locked in, rowing in the same direction, all focusing on one goal, whether they were pissed at each other or not, they were able to compartmentalize and, you know, focus to have him in his final year here when they're willing to let him go do whatever he wants to do. It would be one thing if they were going to, tr- to trade him or they were dangling him in trade talk, you know, talks. It'd be that would be, you know, a little bit more understandable that he was out there trying to control his own destiny. 
But he, all he had to do was play out one more year, and he could have talked to whoever he wanted. He could have gone out and done whatever he wanted. He knew Kraft was going to let him walk. They discussed it. They had already had that discussion. He was going to let him go do whatever he wanted to do. He was bound by no one, and yet he still chose to do that, which it does kind of, it sours it a bit for me, but to think it would spoil the legacy and spoil the, the greatness and all the just the amazing memories that I'll always have of those Patriots teams, I, I'm not going to go that far with it. But I do think the Dolphins actually got off pretty easy, considering how brazenly they, you know, stepped in and, and were essentially tampering with a division rival and, a, and their star player and a Hall of Famer. And the fact that Brady got out of this after doing this, not once, but twice, he did it in Tampa too, you know, like he did it twice and Brady doesn't even get a fine. Like what cosmic rabbit hole have I fallen through where, where Brady gets a pass and the dolphins, oh yeah, they got hit hard. Did they, <laughs> you know, did they really? Cause I don't really think they did. So it, th- those are kind of where, where I land with that. It, it Yeah. It's the power of the PA, of the Players Association. They, they're, that's been clearly negotiated, that they're not going – you know, players can do what they want. The, it's the onus is on the teams to not do it. And, like, you know, early on, I'm like, they, Brady should face some consequence. I was probably wrong there, you know, based on what the PA's power is there, um, you know, based on the rules that are established there. Logically, absolutely he should. But by what the, what's been negotiated, probably not. And while – I'm not sure the Dolphins got off easy, but I think what they what, – what they benefit from is that the picks just go away. The bigger issue to me is that the Patriots and Buccaneers and Saints, for that matter, with the Sean Payton component, aren't benefiting um, in some way from that because that is a competitive balance. You want to say Brady was distracted in 2019? That's a direct result of the the communication with the Miami Dolphins. So they should receive something for that, as should the Saints for Peyton, as should the Buccaneers for Miami continuing to engage in tampering while he's been a member of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But the they benefit, they're, where they're getting off easy is that three other teams aren't getting additional draft picks as a result. Right, and a division rival should be getting those additional yeah. Sorry, Shaq, didn't mean to cut you off. That's okay. Yeah, it it's... <laughs> It's just a bad look at the end of the day. It, yeah. I, I mean, when Flores accused the Dolphins of using him as a, a quote, Uncle Tom to meet a quota, and, and the moment the team was good again, they dump him for another, I guess, presumably white coach like Sean Payton. Um, and then, and specifically Sean Payton. I mean, if they actually sign him and then trade for Brady's rights and sign him after Brady gets to Tampa to release him from his contract, then it pretty much plays out exactly like Flores predicted. So, mm-hmm. and that potentially adds legitimacy to his initial claim. So, but then they stopped pursuit of both. So it's, it's really interesting the way they got away with everything too. But what I don't like about the Brady thing is that, again, all the sycophants, all the, all the, uh, Brady buddy eaters who can't help but, but saying, oh, but everybody does it. And yes, I'm sure there are a lot of people there. It goes on in the NFL way more than we would all like to assume that it does but <laughs> yeah they're corrupt we know we know i mean look uh sean watson got six games <laughs> so you know it, we, we know how bad the nfl is um but it, it's it's pretty crazy i mean i understand if you're Brady, you have to at least listen but it's just still it's still shitty i'm not mad i'm disappointed
Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That sort of way, you know, it's, I, I, I hate being like everybody's mother, you know, but that's, that's how I feel. Like it's, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. He, yeah. he, he was, you know, he, he was a certain person for a long time and has acted in some ways that do not reflect who he's been for a long time. Does that mean he is a dick? No, but it means that he acted like a dick in that situation. And we can acknowledge that and still respect what he did. And you can still like him if you want to, and you can still root for him in Tampa if you want to, as like a secondary thing. Like you can do whatever you want with him, but it's foolish to not acknowledge that that was a shitty thing to do. Yeah, it really was. Um, all right, so let's get to some positive uh, news before we wrap this up. Um, first of all, oh, well, not necessarily positive news, but uh, it is positive in the fact that he's getting out on his terms and not just the fact that uh, he is leaving. Uh, James White has decided to retire, and uh, obviously he's going to be remembered for this moment. <laughs> pretty amazing that the third down back for the New England Patriots has been a revolving door and all of them have been, you know, pretty productive in that position from Falk to Danny, Danny Woodhead to Shane Vereen to now James White. And, uh, I, I, and James White, I would say in as much as, as a, as a Falk fan, as I, am and and was he's better than all of them and it's pretty crazy how how much he, he took in the beginning of his career because oh he couldn't shed a tackle oh he couldn't do any of this stuff and he's just been consistent and been uh dependable and kept his head down the the the, the ultimate patriot uh, what do you guys have to say about james white james white as a teammate and a person deserves the platform that people had reserved for Brady. He was the consummate teammate. He filled a role. He could have wanted a bigger role. He could have wanted a bigger payday. He consistently decided that he was where he wanted to be and would do what was needed of him to be successful. He great human being on top of being and I, I agree with you as much as I love Kevin Falk. And I have like, you know, I went to his talk at the Patriots Hall of Fame. I've met Kevin Falk. Love Kevin Falk. White is the, the best third down back the Patriots have ever had. And he, you know, I, I feel for him. I know that he's retiring, you know, semi on his terms. But when you look at the last two years, the tragedy with his parents and that horrific crash and the hip injury, he deserved better than the road that led him to retirement. He deserved to go out with a successful season in his back pocket or, you know, what ha like he deserved to have a better spot than what he got in those last couple of seasons. And that breaks my heart for him. He has been such a exemplary representation of the Patriot way and what success looks like in filling a role for the new England Patriots. And, a leader and a person and a human and to just see the way that happened, you know, I, I wish it was better, but I'm glad he's leaving with health. I'm glad that he's leaving in a way where he got to decide. 
And I'm glad that he spent his entire career as a Patriot being able to say like he was, you know, you know, he, the Foxborough forever thing, Edelman put it right out after, you know, like Foxborough forever is, you know, is a meaningful thing to a lot of people. And for him to be able to do that is no small feat in a, for eight years in a position that has a really short shelf life. And so just, kudos to him on a remarkable career and until somebody else does it he will be the only person to ever score a walk-off touchdown in the super bowl and so he has a play a, a piece of nfl history all to himself and that's a really remarkable thing for him as well yeah i agree everything that bill said um you just if anybody doesn't know what a remarkable guy james white is just go listen to his teammates talk about him after he retired and while he was still playing um uh, so off the field and just as a human, he seems to me from everything I've seen, read and heard and listening to him talk, salt of the earth sort of guy. Just, you know, Devin McCourty said he was the type of guy that he hopes his daughter brings home uh, to marry. You know, as he's like, if my daughter brings home somebody who's like Jamie. To me, that's the ultimate compliment right there. That's the ultimate compliment. And the other thing that I, I got out of listening to uh, uh, Devin McCourty talk about James White was, he said he was so, such a good pass catcher that when he would drop a ball in practice, there were audible gasps because people didn't know what, you know, what was going Almost like he just saw a no hitter, you know, <laughs> like, he, like he just never dropped him. And uh, I personally, I believe James White should have been the MVP of that Falcon Super Bowl. But, you know, I, I mean, obviously Brady, Brady had a lousy first half, but he was spectacular in the second half. But James White, you know, to me, he was the MVP of that Super Bowl. And just some uh, stats that I saw on Twitter. I, I'm sorry, I don't remember who I got these from. I just copied it into a note. But um, so some some stats on James White from 2015 to 2020. James White had the most receptions by a running back, 364. The next closest was Alvin Kamara with 326. He had the most receiving yards, 3,161. The next closest was Duke Johnson, who had 2,800 yards. And he had the most receiving touchdowns by a running back, 25. The next closest was David Johnson with 17. So that's as good a five-year stretch for a third down back as you're ever, or for a running back, I should say, as you're ever going to find. And like I said, to me, he was the MVP of that Falcon Super Bowl. I don't think they win it without him, so. Yeah, and I forgot to mention in the uh, in the constant uh, what is that a revolving door of third down backs, Dave Meggett for and I know I didn't know Rob will remember this and Mothership guys will remember this from the '96 team. He was kind of the third down back of that generation as well. So uh, the Patriots have been very blessed in this position. And uh, but yeah, back to White. He uh, uh, there's no doubt he's a Patriots Hall of Famer. Um, another five years, he will be right there as as well he should be. Um, and and this is and again, this is a good decision because it, just the recently, like I know he started walking back up again, but then, but I, I think that this is the best decision because he's thirty, running back, like you said, Bill, running back at thirty, it's it's a bit risky because that's you know you, you take a lot of beatings, especially when you're carrying up the middle, so. I think this is great for him. And um, no, he isn't retiring because the team is sucking or whatever whatever stupid uh, thing that people have, have conjured in their mind about why he's leaving. Um, I'm just happy that he is leaving and that he's leaving on his terms. Um, uh, well, let me see. What else do we, ha- do we have to talk about? Oh, well, that will be my final thought. You know what? Uh, yeah, so I think that's about it. 
So um, let's go to final thoughts because I want to I want to give Rob his time. So Bill, what do you have to say for your final thought? This has been a meaty one, so mine will be pretty short to give Rob as much time as he needs to bury Greg Bedard. Um, so for my final thought, it's pretty simple. The Twitter doctors, the sports doctors are the like somehow in a profession of useless tools. They are a next level of useless tool. There is a role they could play. They could they could write about injuries after they happen, talk about the recovery. They could go alongside a reporter and discuss like why a recovery happens in a certain way, what they do, what exercise they like that's the stuff I would I would enjoy from a Twitter doctor, from a sports media doctor. The fans see a non-contact knee injury last night to Zach Wilson. Everybody assumes ACL. None of us are medical experts. We don't we don't pretend to be, but we hypothesize. That's what that's what Twitter is for. I'm not blaming anybody for hypothesizing about the injury. When a Twitter doctor comes on and they all are like, "Oh, you know, this is an ACL." Like and they talk like they know, and then it comes out he's got a bone bruise and some, um, and a microscopic surgery is needed, and he's going to be out two, four, two to four weeks. Then they're all like, yeah, I bat like 95%. Well, yeah, you know what? Because most of the injuries you receive are non-contact and they're ACL. I probably bat about 85%. Like, it's just so useless in the way that they use it currently. They really have to start talking post-injury. We don't need predictors. This isn't fantasy injury. I don't need to draft an injury and and pick it and get points for it. This is somebody's livelihood. And I don't like the concept that a medical professional is giving this faux expertise online when they could be used in a much better purpose. I'm not saying that they're not good doctors. I'm not saying that they're not doctors. I'm saying you don't know because you're not there. Much like the media doesn't know what's happening in training camp when they're not like fully grasping what the situation is. Talk about what happens in the recovery process after the injury is announced. Talk about the the rehab. Talk about what the surgery is. There's so much use for that. And you can repeat uh, that often because different audiences are going to be tuned into it based on who got hurt. It's just the Twitter doctors and the way that they're used right now are among the most useless incompetence on the Internet and really could be much better. And, you know, it would be an easier improvement than the rest of sports media. So it's almost more infuriating to see how just absurd and moronic some of their takes and their quotes are that they bring to the table. (laughs) So my final thought um, has been something that's kind of stuck in my craw for a while now. I mean, I think we all know because we follow it closely what a pathological liar and an asshole Greg Bedard is. I think we've all known that for a very long time. And he's taken it next level since he left the the globe and started his ridiculous uh, paywall website that I'm not even going to mention. But, you know, mer- you know, hemorrhaging subscribers, I get it. You need to get your name out there. You need to try and drum up some subscribe, put some food on your table, whatever you need to do. I understand that. So he has taken to inventing stories that are just such clearly nonsense and i'm just gonna i'm gonna use three because of time constraints but believe me there's more 
So uh, Kirk Minahan was the one. I want to give him the credit. He's the one who called him out for this about a year ago. Greg Bedard on the Felgrid Mass Show made up a story about being at the Combine and seeing Aaron Hernandez stumble into a bar and Aaron Hernandez stumbling out of the bar and, get you know, pissing on a car and the cops got involved and Greg Bedard swooped in and saved the day and all this sort of nonsense that no one saw, by the way. No one saw Aaron Hernandez. do. Nobody has ever corroborated this story ever. You know, so it's such clearly he so clearly made that story up. That's one. Number two was when uh, during the 2020 offseason, when he cooked up that story about Bill Belichick flirting with the Giants and always wanting to go back and coach. the. This was stuff on Felger and Maz that he says he's, you know, he, he sourced to an anonymous whatever in the Giants organization saying Bill Belichick was, you know, having communications with the Giants about leaving the Patriots and coaching the Giants, this, that and the other. And then a week later, Belichick's assistant, Joe Judge, gets hired. You know, which tells you right there that the story was just bullshit. It just was never happening. And I questioned, I don't think there was ever a source at all. I don't think Greg Bedard has any sources. But the coup de grace for me and the one that those two are just annoying. It just it's just annoying. But the one that really gets me was his draft day Christian Barmore take, which that to me crossed the line. Like you want to lie and just make up things about the stuff that really doesn't matter. That's fine. But when you take a guy who, by all accounts, is a really cool guy that every single one of his teammates not only talks nice about, but raves about what a funny guy he is, what an outgoing, what a loving teddy bear. He's this, he's that. And he makes up this story about how, you know, he fell in the draft because of character issues and things that I can't get into that I heard from a source and all this essentially painting him out to be a closeted Tyreek Hill, you know, that he's out there as this menace to society is essentially what he's saying, just assassinating the character of, you know, for all all accounts, is a really good guy who doesn't deserve to have his character assassinated because Greg Bedard can't find people that want to subscribe to his bullshit website. So he assassinates this kid's character. Never once is he held accountable for it. Nick Saban even comes out and defends Barmore. Belichick's defended Barmore. His teammates rave about him. Then you go and you watch Barmore himself in press conferences with the media. You watch him. He comes out there and the first five minutes of it is him ask, looking at all the media. Guy. Hey, how are you doing today? Genuinely caring about how they are today, you know, and for Greg Bedard to choose him to assassinate his character and for nothing to be done about it drives me up the wall. And to me, the onus falls on the Patriots PR department. It falls on the Stacey James of the world, who I understand these guys. I'm in PR for a living. I understand that these guys you know, they have to get, there's a little bit of latitude with the Felger and Mazes of the world. They want to go on the radio and say, Sony Michelle sucks and blows. They want to go on the radio and they want to say, Isaiah wins the broken fat kid from Georgia. I understand there's some things you just kind of have to swallow and be like, whatever, it's hot take radio. They're going to do what they're going to do. But to me, Greg Bedard crossed a line. He crossed a line with Christian Barmore. And what the Patriots PR team needs to do, they need to yank his credential. That's what they need to do. They need to yank his credential. You are no longer allowed in press conferences. You're not allowed in the press box. You're not allowed in the building. You're not allowed in the parking lot until you can either show me that what you reported was fact or you publicly apologize to Christian Barmore for lying about him and trying to assassinate his character. And then I would go a step further than that because Stacey James and the Patriots PR department are the ones with all the leverage here. Go to 98.5 and tell them, look, you're our flagship station now, but when that contract expires, guess what you're not going to be anymore? Because I'm going to yank the contract and I'm going to go give it to any other station in the world. As long as you put that guy on your airwaves, 
you're not going to be our flagship station flagship station anymore. You're gone. You're done. This contract is over unless this guy is off your airway. That's what needs to happen. And they need to tell 98.5, you want to start hemorrhaging viewers. How about you no longer carry the New England Patriots and you're not going to have access to any one of our players again if I hear that guy's voice on your airwaves again. They need to take a stand against this sort of shit. You know, this is this cross that you can't allow this. Their job as the PR department is to protect the players, the coaches, the people that work in the organization from this kind of slander. That's what their job is. That's what needs to happen. And they need to do it now instead of allowing Greg Bedard to get away with it. The more they allow him to get away with it, the more he's he's seen on, you know, ESPN. He's pulled on as an expert talking about the Patriots. He's pulled on all these shows and everybody quote, he is a liar. He is an asshole. You know, stop giving the, the Patriots need to take a stand here, in my opinion. That's where I'm at with Greg Bedard is it's time to go nuclear on him. And the only people that can do it are in the Patriots PR department. I have nothing to say to that except bravo. And I know uh, Ironhead is probably crying that would be after he hears that final thought of yours, Rob. So great job. I, I can't say anything better. And I, I'm going to yield my time to, for my final thought to uh, new Hall of Famer uh, Richard Seymour. And, of course, this wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Coach Belichick. Coach, you're the best coach in the game. The lessons that I've learned from you set me up for success, not just in the game, but in life. Work hard. Be meticulous in your preparation. Support your teammates. Respect your opponents. And put the team first. Coach, thank you for everything you've taught me. And I recommend you hear that entire speech because it was a really great speech. He mentions craft. He mentions, you know, a lot of things. So I recommend watching that speech if you, when you get a chance. So that's going to do it for us here at Entitled Weekend. You can email us at EntitledWeekend at gmail.com. Um, I, I'm, I'm couching a couple of uh, topics that I wanted to talk about for next week because this show was just so jam-packed with bullshit and we had to correct it. So, uh, we'll get to those topics next week or maybe in the future <laughs> if we don't have a lot of bullshit, but I doubt it because that's the way it's been going the last couple of weeks. But um, anyway, uh, you can follow me at Atomic Dog 5150. You can follow Bill at the Fib 0624. And you can follow uh, Rob at his uh, new uh, at, I think he just changed it to at Hoodie Supremus. I think that's an awesome at. <laughs> so you, you can follow us there. And you can follow Entitled Weekend at Entitled Weekend. Um, and until next time, turn off your radio. Just, just really quickly, just to follow up if I could, you mentioned earlier um, with the offensive play caller, you're going through a process. What do you need to see to make a final decision? I mean, just, we're going through a process. Simple as that. Okay. It's just a little bit of a an unusual situation for us that have watched you guys before. And so, what do you want me to do? I guess we're just looking for a little clarity as to Great. why we're seeing what we're seeing. Yeah. Going through a process. Okay. All right. Thank you.